Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. A true story. They joined for freedom. They fought for honor. They found glory. That's a clip from the trailer of the 1989 film Glory, which tells the story of the first black regiment to fight for the Union during the Civil War, the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, and their white commander, Robert Gould Shaw, are memorialized on the Boston Common with a monument considered one of the most important installations of public art in the country. The Shaw and the 54th Regiment Memorial is about to undergo a multi-million dollar restoration, which we discussed discussed on the show last fall. Over the past year, the Museum of African American History and the Friends of the Public Garden have been collaborating on programs and events highlighting Boston's black history as a prelude to the construction. Later in the show, you know less is more, the minimalist catchphrase, but a new exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston is turning that saying on its head. Embracing creative excess with less is a bore, maximalist art and design. But first, last year I was joined by three people involved with the 54th Regiment Memorial and the restoration project to discuss the construction and the history behind the monument. Marita Rivero, who is the executive director of the Museum of African American History in Boston. So oh. glad to be here. Thank I'm so you. glad to have you, Marita. Liz Visa, the executive director at Friends of the Public Garden. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. Great to be here, Kelly. <laughs> and Joe Zellner, who is a member and the former president of the board of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment Company, A Reenactors. Welcome, thank, Joe. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. So I want to start with you, Marita, because when I first saw the movie Glory, it's not been that long ago, I didn't have a clue about the 54th. And I'm thinking I'm not unusual. And I bet many people don't even know this monument is there and what it stands for. So talk a little bit about why it's so important. Well, here we are, right, in the, in the city that really pushed through that last wave of abolition secured what we call the modern democracy. And people say, I didn't know the African Meeting House was there. I didn't know the, the Heritage Trail. And I didn't know the Shaw Memorial was there. When we don't know our history, when we don't have images in our heads of people who were active, who were acting in their own behalf even, who were working across race and gender and class uh, in really what has to be one of the major civic engagement stories and movements in this country, right? the first real struggle for human rights. When you don't have the picture in your head of who's doing that and why, you come into our current discussion and dialogue really missing important elements. So it is important for us to take the time to use this moment of restoration 
to open up our heads to think again about who's an American? How did we get here? Who has been involved in this great experiment in democracy? And how do we really want to move forward? So who were the 54th uh, men in the Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry? These were men who were living anywhere from Indiana to Ohio to Canada to New York. The call went out from Boston. The black community leaders in Boston said to the then governor, John Andrew, we're losing this war. And if black men can't fight, we can't even imagine what could happen. We can't lose. We're ready to raise a regiment. Frederick Douglass is prepared to recruit. And we know people all through, all around the states at that time who are ready to fight. So the people who came forward included people who were free blacks who were working. They came from, as I said, a broad geographic space. One quarter of them were from enslaved, were from slave states and the Caribbean, one quarter of them. So this was an effort that took in everyone from Frederick Douglass's two sons, Lewis and Charles, uh, to a farmer, to someone who was working for someone else. This was a massive effort to shore up the Union and to really push forward uh, to win this war. So you had to have somebody to lead this troop that uh, came together in the way that you've just said, and it fell to Robert Gould Shaw, who was, my God, 25 years old and kind of a reluctant leader. I want to play a clip from Glory. Uh, This is when Massachusetts Governor John Albion Andrew tells Robert Gould Shaw he has submitted his name to command the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. I could use your help, Robert. The governor is proposing to raise a regiment of Negro soldiers. No, no, no. It was not just my idea. Mr. Douglas and We will offer pride and dignity to those who have known only degradation. Colored soldiers, Rob. Just think of it. Wonderful. I've submitted your name, Robert, to be commissioned colonel of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. Thank you, Governor. That's... It's a wonderful idea. So Marita Rivero of the Boston Museum of African-American History, who was Robert Gould Shaw? So Robert Gould Shaw was the son of a very wealthy family. They were abolitionists. Uh, He himself was a veteran. Uh, He'd fought in Antietam. He dropped out of Harvard in order to join the Union Army uh, and had fought at the Battle of Antietam. So when he was called forward by the governor, it was because no one could accept the idea that they were going to be black officers. It was hard enough to accept the idea that they were going to be black men who were going to be reasonable soldiers. But officers, no. Uh, and so the governor really went to a family, went to his father first, actually, and said, I'd like to talk to your son. And the parents agreed, yes, of course. So he had to find white officers, 37 in the end. There were 1,000 uh, troops in the regiment, 37 officers who would step forward, believe in this cause, believe in their time in this cause, uh, and be willing to lead these troops. And Shaw, I don't think, was reluctant. Uh, He said, as we heard, yes, I'll take this commission. And he did, and he did so honorably. So, Liz Visa, where the monument of the 54th and Robert Gould Shaw is, I don't know if a lot of people understand, is that's the spot where they marched off 
when it all came together, when Robert Goulshaw had been named, when the men came from all the places that Marita had named. And there it is in the spot where they marched off. I mean, it's doubly historic, if you will. Absolutely. <laughs> they indeed marched down Beacon Street. They were waved by, by their neighbors and friends and family and went off to uh, the water and, and floated down to, to South Carolina. So it's really, in, it's significant that it's the place where they marched. It's also significant that it's across the street from the state house, from the place of power in the state. So it's really important that the, the monument and the state house speaks to one another. At that time, did it look like it kind of looks now where the common is and where the street is and where the state house is? Was there anything different at the time they were marching? Because, of course, the monument wasn't there yet. <laughs> no, it actually, you know, the common looks remarkably the same as it did since the 16th, 17th century. Um, the space looks the same. One thing that was there before the monument, which we should point out, is those trees in front of the monument. People often scratch their heads and say, what is it with those huge, strange-looking trees? Those two English elms were planted in the 18th century, and it's possible that they were planted by John Hancock, who lived across the street before the huh. state house was there. His estate was across the street, and he got uh, permission from the Board of Selectmen in 1780 to plant elms in the common. And these could be the elms that he planted. They go back, as I say, to the 1700s, and they're the oldest English elms in the Western Hemisphere. So when Augustus St. Gaudens designed the monument, he designed it to be framed by those two elms. And the Friends works very hard to protect the elms and preserve them as we move forward because they are significant as well. Hmm. That's my guest, Les Visa. She is the executive director at Friends of the Public Garden. Now, something else. One of the reasons that the piece is, and there are so many layers to why it's important, was the artist. Talk about the artist um, and why that helped to elevate this monument to a place, you know, almost instantly because of who he was. So Augustus St. Gaudens was ultimately chosen. There were other people that were considered before him, and there were other forms that were considered before he set to work to do what he did. The original thought was to be an equestrian statue. The Shaw family didn't want Shaw to be shown uh, separate from his men and also didn't think he was important enough. He wasn't a general, and these equestrian statues are usually generals. Augustus St. Gaudens was beginning to be very well known. He did the Farragut Memorial in New York City at the um, Madison Park. And, uh, in fact, he was commissioned in 1884 to take two years to do the work, and he got busy with other work. Other mm -hmm. people were demanding his time, so it took him 14 years to do this, this monument. He was well-known, the, the Charles McKim of the famous uh, sculpture architectural firm, McKim, Mead, and White, did the architectural surrounds. So they both mm -hmm. were very noted, both sculptors and architects that did the work. And one of the things that, that's striking about the piece then and now and continues to be is that the faces of the men are quite distinct and that at the time, you know, black people were just sort of thought of as one big lump. Well, you know, and so it, it could have easily been where there was almost no distinction between the men who represented the folks who fought. But this became a, a distinctive feature of this piece, and he got his models. Absolutely, radically, actually. Yes. He brought African-American men into his studio, and he modeled dozens of heads. So he's not showing a caricature of a black man. He's showing individuals from the young drummer boy in the front to the grizzled old man behind him to the two soldiers behind Shaw. It was shocking in a wonderful way when it was unveiled. I mean, people realized its greatness immediately. And as you say, Callie, people could relate to the fact that these are individual human beings that are marching off in a very personal battle for themselves. 
Now, what we've learned about St. Gardens is that he had plenty of racial prejudices. He didn't really think much of the men who came in to model for him. Um, and yet, he decided to make this distinction. Uh, this is from the PBS series, 10 Monuments That Changed America. Professor Kirk Savage of the University of Pittsburgh speaks to how the monument was revolutionary, not only in how it depicted the black soldiers, um, despite uh, St. Gardens' racial prejudices. The artist in him was really interested in the actual faces of the men. If you look at the monument carefully, you'll see that each face is different. It was unprecedented, a realistic tableau of a diverse group of black men in an era when most representations of African-Americans were caricatures. So that just, I mean, who knew that? You just assume that this was, he was part of some kind of abolitionist strain and he very much was not. And yet he ended up creating a piece that lives on today and that really celebrates um, who those men were inadvertently. <laughs> I mean, if, if, even if that wasn't his original intention. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I think, and you can agree with me or not, that that's the striking part of it, that people come up and it feels so defined. Um, it is remarkable. Mm -hmm. This th These individual men speak to you in an incredible way. I mean, when it was unveiled, it was clear immediately that this was a great piece of art. It did not have to grow on Boston and, and the world. It was clear, evident, just in terms of the artistry, in terms of the individuality of these men, in terms of the relationship between the bronze and the architectural surround, it was just a shockingly successful monument from the moment it was unveiled. Well, now over to you, Joe Zellner, because the 54th lives on through people like yourself. Yes. Um, you uh, reenact the men who were made up those faces, the real people, the real histories of those men that came from Indiana and every place else around the country to be a part of this. Talk to me about how you first knew about the 54th, or maybe you always knew about them. Not that I always knew about them, but I had for a long while. I was most impressed when in 1997 the anniversary of the um, unveiling of the monument was held on the Boston Common, and when many of the federal and state dignitaries were there, there were reenactors there who reenacted that march that Liz talked about. They reenacted that parade down Beacon Street, which was the precursor to their getting on board ships and steaming down to Charleston. But as I think about myself, I knew about, about the regiment historically, but it was that visualization of those reenactors that impressed it upon me that, hey, I'd like to do that. And it was from that 1997, it took me a while to get into it, a few years later, but uh, it was that parade, that commemoration, that centennial celebration, which impressed upon me, yes, this needs to be remembered. And if I can help that by joining the men who reenact the regiment, then I want to do that also. So that was my introduction. So you had a little, probably a little motivation because you were a history teacher at one point. So that, <laughs> that probably brought you uh, closer to the subject matter. <laughs> yes. And it gave me, I think there's a greater reality when one participates in history as opposed to simply preach or teach about history. I, there is a lot to be said for having been there and done that, which adds to one's credibility not only to the audience that you're trying to instruct, but also to your own security, your own appreciation 
for what it is you're instructing. So yes, history teaching is my profession and um, being part of the 54th and that and the 54th being part of the African-American history is also very important to me. So people may not know that when you guys get together to reenact a scene, you're not just you know doing a sort of amorphous marching down black men in uniform. You actually know the men that you're representing. Tell us about who you represent in the 54th. Yes, and I encouraged our men to represent themselves, you know, why I reenact, but also to take it upon themselves to learn the history of a specific individual in the regiment. I reenacted and still do reenact Solomon Pierce. And why Solomon Pierce? The luck of the draw. I was, When I started reenacting, I figured that I could reenact a 40-year-old much better than I could reenact an 18-year-old. There had to be just because you're an older gentleman, just well, so yes. we should say that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there had to be some credibility mm-hmm. in my feeling about mm-hmm. the character. Mm-hmm. And so I began looking through the regimental history, trying to find the oldest man in Company A that I could. And the first one that I came upon was a 42-year-old, Solomon Pierce. And I was just, I'll use the expression, blown away mm-hmm. that a 42-year-old, and this isn't a professional soldier in that he joined when he was 20 and had been a 22-year veteran, he, as a 42-year-old, joined for the first time. I was more impressed when I found out that he joined after his oldest son had joined. And then a third aspect of that was that when Solomon joined, he took his second son, his 19-year-old son, to join with him And the three of them will serve in the regiment. One will die. His oldest son, uh, Harrison Pierce, will die at the assault on Fort Wagner. And he and his second son will live and survive the war and are buried in Munson, Massachusetts. So as I began to find out more and more about this person, I was just more and more impressed that here was a a 42-year-old father of four, who joins the war and the sequence and the series in which he joined because his first son dies in July of 1863. He doesn't join until December of 1863. He takes himself and his second son. They leave their wife and mother, Solomon's wife and his second son's mother, at home with a nine-year-old and a child that will be born nine months later in August of 1864. And I can only guess, I wish I had some document or some paper that would give me some idea of what the discussion was that went on in that family between July of 1863 and and December of 1863 when husband and wife are trying to decide, are you going to take my second son and yourself Who's going to run the farm? So Solomon was quite an impressive character to me. Well, that brings me to this part, uh, Joe Zellner, reenactor of uh, 54th. How do you feel when you portray these men? Because, you know, you have to put forth that these were men that were giving up a lot, putting a lot on the line for something they felt was so important, not just for themselves, but actually for the people they were leaving behind. 
It was very moving, military expression. I know it goes back to 1863. It probably goes back earlier. But seeing the elephant, that is that emotion that overcomes one, particularly when one first goes into battle. And as I first went into my reenacting battle, I was not necessarily, I was not overcome, but I was become with emotion as to what the men must have felt, especially when you are marching in a straight line, wearing blue, knowing that the other side is going to be shooting at you. And it is quite possible, quite probable, that one of those shells, bullets, canister, grape, whatever, is going to hit you. So, yes, I'm not a veteran myself, but I play the role of one. And I, too, felt that emotion that just made me realize that this is more than play acting. This is more than cowboys and Indians. This is giving credence and credibility to the life of another, one that I don't even know, but wish that I knew more about. And 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 credence to the his cause, because the cause yes. was freedom. I mean, they were in the middle of the Civil War looking to be free. And <laughs> but keep in mind, Solomon was free. Yes. But Solomon I mean the and cause. his family. Yes. The, yes, yes. The yeah. cause was freedom. Mm-hmm. That he's not fighting for his freedom. He's fighting for freedom exactly. of people he doesn't even know. He's fighting for the notion of all men are created equal and endowed with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So freedom to him was achieved. He's fighting to achieve the freedom of many others. Well, you all have gotten some, as well deserved, some national attention many times, um, performed at both of the inaugural parades for President Barack Obama. That had to be a thrill. Yes, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the regiment was asked uh, and petitioned first time and second time to participate and it brought out it did great things for our membership enrollment (laughs) but um regrettably that sort of waned after the second event but nonetheless um it gave us a lot of national attention recognition and we appreciated the opportunity it was a great thing to be participating as soldiers reenacting um, that which was denied to them uh, in 1865. It was denied to them to march in Washington, D.C. in 1865. But we got the opportunity in 2009 and again in 2013. Joe, there's there are some issues um, beyond the 54th reenactors about just finding folks to continue being these characters in living history. Um, we know we can't let that happen. This is an important group. Tell me... What's, what's going on there? Um, lots of reenactors, not just black reenactors, but lots of reenactors and Confederate reenactors also. Um, over the past 10 years, I heard many comments about uh, when the 150th comes around, I think we want to hang it up. Mm. And um, 1865 to uh, 26, 2015 was the 150th. And as a lot of reenactors, myself included, I haven't hung it up, but uh, we've all gotten older and we've not been successful as we need to be, as successful as we need to be in recruiting 35-year-olds, uh, 42-year-olds, as, as was my case. But uh, Maybe this will help, this restoration and the attention about it, on it. 
you think? Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will certainly be that stone monument that will live live on in the place, even if the human flesh and blood people don't step up. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I think about the living history, the the people portraying the roles, I'm I'm wary. Um, I don't have a good idea as to how to stimulate or excite or reinvigorate and been there, done that. It's been a generation now since Glory was produced. You're right. It's been 30 years. Um, it'll be 30 years next year. Our regiment is planning a 30-year 30, a 30 commemoration for next year. But uh, there's a, a lot of 18-year-olds. What? Glory what? What? You know, they, they haven't seen the mm-hmm. film and they don't know the story. So, which is a good reason to have all these discussions during this restoration period. And um, yes, mm-hmm. one one of the you know I think if people might ask, two point eight million dollars, it looks pretty good to me, but that might stimulate that aspect of the history, which would allow us to bring in human bodies to stimulate the living history aspect of the history. So, I trust so. So the reason we're having this conversation to remind everybody who's listening uh, is not just to remind folks that we have a great monument and you should know about it and there's history and it's beautiful, but there is about to be paid a great amount of attention to it, a huge restoration project, uh, which was just kicked off recently. I want to play a little bit of the Massachusetts 54th reenactors presenting the nation's colors at the restoration launch, which was in July. That's the 54th reenactors in action. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Last year, I spoke with Marita Rivero of the Museum of African American History in Boston, Liz Viza of the Friends of the Public Garden, and Joe Zellner, a member of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment reenactors, about the Robert Gould Shaw and Massachusetts 54th Regiment Memorial Restoration Project. So, Liz, let's start with you. There's a lot of money being put in uh, restoring this monument. Uh, describe exactly what's going to happen and why it's needed at this point. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. People do look at this and say, what's going on? It looks pretty good to me. And uh, the Friends of the Public Garden, just a bit of background, we work with the city. We have since 1970 to care for the Boston Common as well as the Public Garden and Commonwealth Avenue Mall. And our first major campaign was in 1981 when we raised $200,000, which was then a large sum of money, to restore this monument, which at that point was a victim of corrosion, neglect, and vandalism. It was in terrible condition. So we restored it. We set up an endowment for care. We've been caring for it ever since. Three years ago, when our stone conservator was doing work on the stone, he pulled one of the stones below the bronze back away and looked at the foundation under the bronze and realized that that brick foundation was not as strong and sturdy as it should be. So given that, if it were we were to have a seismic event, it would not hold up under that. So we realized at that point that there was a fundamental need to do a reconstruction. So we're taking everything, and I want to also mention that we're doing it in partnership with clearly the city of Boston, which we are partners with, as well as the um, National Park Service, who is bringing half of the money to the table, which is really wonderful. 
We're taking everything off-site from the plaza level up, all the stone and the bronze, mm-hmm. bringing it to a conservation studio. We are um, re-waterproofing the plaza. We are um, conserving the, the uh, bronze and the, and the stone, but we are most importantly rebuilding that, that brick foundation into concrete, putting it all back together, pinning the bronze to the marble. We really don't know how exactly that is pinned to it. We want to wow. make sure it's really strong and sturdy. Um, we're also putting something underneath. This is an example of how technology can help preservation. It's called cathodic protection, and it's an electrical system. It's used a lot in... Um, oil rigs offshore. They're sitting in water and corrosion is, is happily working its way into their steel. So it introduces a piece of metal that is known as sacrificial metal. So the electrical current helped to bring corrosion to that sacrificial metal and protect the steel beams that are holding up the plaza, that are holding up the monument. So all of that adds up to $2.8 million. That will be off-site. It could be up to six months. We say four to five, but it could be longer than that. In the meantime, we're going to be having a full-size scrim to, so people can look at that monument in the absence of it being there. And also in the meantime, you're going to be kicking off uh, some programs to have some discussions both about the monument itself, Marita, and also uh, issues beyond that. Let's just take a listen to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Uh, he was uh, kicking off the launch of the restoration and talking about looking forward while the restoration is being going underway. Boston is proud. But we can't rest in that pride. Instead, we must use that pride to set a standard for today and have conversations we need to reach that standard. That's what this memorial project will help us do. So what about those conversations, Marita Rivera? It's important for us to to remember that history is context. Uh, And when we're talking, we're looking at the front pages of our paper, listening to radio, television, talking to our neighbors. Those conversations are happening uh, in some kind of surround, emotional, sometimes intellectual. Uh, And we need to bring forward right now this sort of question of social justice, racial equity in a contextual framework. The memorial allows us to do that. The 54th was recruited right there on Joy Street uh, in Boston. Uh, We're looking at a society that at the time thought black men were just incapable. There were stereotypes, cartoon figures. Uh, the, the 54th changed that. One of its real values was that it changed how black people were seen in this country. Uh, their bravery was unquestioned, no less a personage than Abraham Lincoln uh, really said that without this, uh, A, their bravery attracted thousands more to the war, um, but really without, without their kind of action, we would not have been able to move forward in the way that we did. So these opportunities to go back and ask ourselves, how are we seeing one another? Have we moved past cartoon figures of one another, past stereotypes? Are we able to actually have real kind of dialogues? Um, This is one way to begin to open that up, Uh, to begin to think about what surrounds us as public art, public uh, buildings. Uh, We have an old African meeting house on Beacon Hill, 1806. What does that mean? Uh, People call it a hidden secret. They just walk past it, or they might walk past the Shaw. This is a moment to help people stop and really reconsider how these monuments came into being, why we preserve them, what do they mean, how do they uh, resonate with our own images of who we are, uh, who we intend to be. Um, So the project partners uh, really felt that having a vision uh, for 
a dialogue that could be encouraged, partnered with, uh, that could extend even past the restoration of the monument was a critical goal. Um, we want people to know about this wonderful monument around the country. It's a chance to really bring it and its meaning forward nationally. It's a chance locally uh, to say, what's the next step in the dialogue we need to be having? And how can this history and this discussion of stereotype, of public art, uh, a public memorial, and even public memory be part of what we do right now? Uh, so I think the dialogue on social justice, on uh, racial equity, uh, is one that has animated a sizable percentage of the population. It's certainly been, been something the mayor of the city has been interested in. And for us to be part in this partnership now with the National Park Service, the city, and the friends, means that we have a, a just a chance to focus again on, on historic context, but to allow it to inform a dialogue we might not have had yet. So I'm, I'm excited about what could, what could come from this long term. And it's about 18 months is the restoration, so you have quite a bit of time um, to put forth any of these discussions, various programs, events around the, during the restoration process. We have time to do that, and we're hoping, um, we're hoping that, you know, in addition to what we will see as uh, some large kind of public events that we manage, that the, our partnerships can continue to create programming that will address these issues as we go through the 18 months. The Museum of African American History has a, a race in the public dialogue series. Um, we are going to continue with that. You know, we just finished a piece on the future, looking at everything from uh, Phyllis Wheatley and her interest in, in uh, I want to say, science fiction. Can you believe that? Mm. William E.B. Du Bois wrote science fiction straight through to the Black Panther movie. You know, how do we begin to think about extending these ideas uh, forward? Connections. Connections. Mm -hmm. um, what do we mean that people seem to wonder who's an American? And a lot of discussion now about mm -hmm. who's a real American. Uh, and we here in Boston know that in this maritime society, everybody was here, right? The mm -hmm. China trade brought people from Asia, Caribbean people, people from South America, Middle East, Mediterranean, North Africa. We were all here in Boston. Women, men, uh, all levels of society were here. And beginning to expand that story, to expand what we say, allows us to see ourselves in America, I think, in a much more enlightened way. Absolutely. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I thank you all for joining me today. Thank and you. I look forward Great to hearing to about the activities as they happen over the next uh, months. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Marita Rivero is the executive director of the Museum of African American History in Boston. Liz Visa is the executive director at Friends of the Public Garden. And Joe Zellner is a member and the former president of the board of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment Company A reenactors. An upcoming event to kick off construction for the Shaw and Massachusetts 54th Regiment Memorial Restoration Project is scheduled for October 10th. Coming up, minimalism is having a moment thanks to lifestyle icons like master clutter conqueror Marie Kondo. But some prefer to live life governed by the maxim more is more, which is at the heart of a new exhibit at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art. We dive into the world of maximalism with Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design at the ICA. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Thank you.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. And the idea of extra also happens to be the topic of our next discussion. The exhibition is about an approach to art that looks more to pile on than strip away. You might be familiar with the phrase, less is more. It describes minimalism, an art movement characterized by simple content and form, with no personal expression. But a new exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art declares less is a bore, marking a renewed excitement about maximalism with its loud and layered complex visuals. It's an approach, and with a work in this show, which spans from 1969 to the present, it shows artists putting in more information, more visual stimulation, more pattern, more decoration, more adornment. That's essentially what's going on in the galleries. Guest curator Janelle Porter selected the 40 artists for Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design. We took a trip to the Institute of Contemporary Art to speak with her and explore the exhibit. Hello, Janelle. Hello. I'm so glad to be with you. you. So I embrace more is more. Mm-hmm. because it's that's my style. <laughs> so I love what you've done here in this exhibit. It's it's so wonderful. How did you come to pick these 40 artists to really express maximalist art and design? Well, making exhibitions is always really subjective, and I often have to say that there are probably 29 ways that you could make a show about one idea, but these artists particularly are artists that have inspired the the exhibition itself who have made really significant work that directly addresses some of the uh, main ideas in the show about pattern and decoration and ornament and maximalism more is more and you know artists i've had conversations with artists sometimes who have looked to other artists you'll find when you're talking with artists they'll say well you know you should check out this person this this artist was very significant to me and you kind of find all of these links and you put it all together and there's editing and, and all those things that, you know, that, that we do as curators. But again, subjective. They're all, these artists are all over the place. They are, by and large, in America. And I've been doing this for a long time and you start to know what's out there. <laughs> you choose. <laughs> okay. So when we say layered and bold with complex visuals, I mean, you see it in the work, but how do you describe that? How do you how do you you make it clearer for for people who are trying to say, well, is that just a collage? Right, right. <laughs> and in a way, how do I we describe art to during a radio show? Yeah, which we exactly. have our own challenges here in this room. <laughs> the works in the exhibition, you'll find when you see the show, have each of them a lot of color, a lot of detail, a lot of lines and flowers and patterns and ornamented surfaces those ideas are all in the work and I mean it's a little bit of a visual extravaganza the exhibition and so when when one thinks about you know a kind of like a clothing pattern or a wallpaper pattern a city street uh, the fenestration of uh, all the skyscrapers that surround the ICA these are the kinds of ideas that are critical to the exhibition and I that you that you'll see in the show (laughs) <laughs> Does that make 
It's okay. I guess my question to you is what strikes you? Because you said some of it is a little bit subjective, but of course you have a practice eye at going right for, wow, this is really a clear expression of this. Okay. So there are many things in the show as I go through it that would not be my personal taste, mm -hmm. but I have a definite resonance with it because I'm a more is more person. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, from your expert eye, find that resonance? Well, I love that you said the word taste because <laughs> it's like a dirty word that we like to avoid because we are interested in a kind of objectivity that you're looking expansively that you have an open eye and that is not maybe just the things that you like to look at that you might include in an exhibition the there are things in the show that 10 years ago I saw and did not like uh interesting taste change right yeah. that you Maybe I would have decorated my house differently 15 years ago than I have now. There's a lot more pattern in my house. And a lot of it, I think, is because of thinking about the show for so many years and looking more into the work and looking at looking at the things that artists were looking at. They're looking at Islamic tile work. They're looking at the patterns of Japanese kimono. They're looking at architecture ornamentation. They're looking at garments and performance costume. And I suppose like I let my taste lead me around a bit. And uh, by and large, it's a lot of things I like, but I am the first to say that not everybody is going to like it. And even I love you're saying like, well, I like that one. I don't like that one. But even, like mo mostly because of what you like for yourself, you're responding to the exhibition. I think some people might feel like they're getting a rash when they're in the show. <laughs> I don't think so, because as I say, even the ones that are not my particular taste, I resonate with. I enjoy what the artist is doing, even if it's not something that I would hang on my wall or put on my floor or whatever. Now, I'm interested in a couple of things. Let me pick up from something you just said, because you mentioned all the various ways that artists are taking in other other patterns, other cultures, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and we, I think, as Americans, if we go by food, have expanded our palate as well. So are we more open now to more is more than in a way that we couldn't have been, let's say, in the 50s um, when yeah. artists maybe have tried to have some of this expression? I mean, I think we are, and I also don't feel like any expert in this, but, w I mean, we at this table are old enough to remember what food was like, say, 10 years ago and what the kinds of things you get. It's such actually a great analogy because even in this neighborhood at the ICA, there's all these restaurants and there's kind of one of everything. And you see that people are so much more interested in food and in different kinds of flavors. And it's like there's more access now. A lot of that is the internet, right? It's this kind of sharing. People are able to travel is less expensive. People are sort of able to get out into the world. With immigration, of course, we just get all of these great people that bring their taste and culture and food, fashion, everything. I do think things are more open. I think we're more open. I think it can be uncomfortable to be so open. And I think, you know, people are very uncomfortable right now and the world that we're living in but that I was even surprised in the exhibition to go from ideas about pattern and decoration which came through uh, came together at a time of pluralism to now I was thinking very much when I got to the last rooms of the show about the internet about the information glut mm. about how much information we're taking in 
And that like set in 1970, when the book Future Shock was released, that book was about information glut, about the transition from an industrial to a super industrial society. And now look where we are. Like they thought it was too much then. And now 50 years, yeah. <laughs> we're like, mm. what are we doing? We're looking at screens all day long. Everybody's looking at their phone all the time. The information is instantaneous. You know where your friends are eating, what they're eating, what they're wearing, what they're looking at. I, there's already pictures of the show all read all over Instagram. Mm. So it's kind of like, yes, we're more open, but it's also there's so much more information available to us. And, you know, you brought up something that I, I hadn't thought about until this moment, which is that because of the Internet, we think we're multitasking. You know, there's all kinds of studies saying you really can't multitask. But the bottom line is, if you think you're doing two things at once, you're layering upon layering upon layering. Yes. So your access to more is more uh, as a kind of uh multi-dimensional experience is happening pretty much all the time <laughs> yes and I I do think it's it's in the show you know one of the ways that like sort of process information as a curator is by writing the catalog essay you can put so much more into that and where that I don't want to you know knock on you sketch it out for you obviously that would be boring but the, <laughs> the uh, ideas about what artists were looking at and what they were able to look at, say, in the 1970s in the center of the American art world, which was New York, was totally different than now. You really had to go to the museums to see art. You really had to go out into the world and travel, which wasn't as accessible as it is now. And, for example, in the 1970s, the Islamic wing and the Met opened. They'd had this incredible collection, but there had never been a whole wing devoted to Islamic art. And at the same time, in the 70s, there was a lot of anti-Middle Eastern sentiment. There was the oil crisis. There was a hostage crisis. I mean, there was like, it's not so different than now, unfortunately. So we think about the way artists were looking then, what they had access to. Compare that to now. It's so different. And artists, I think, have to deal with more, take in more, and still are able to filter and regurgitate these incredible objects for us to look at that include more, when we walked into the last room of the show, you know, you let out a kind of like, wow, mm -hmm. because even the exhibition builds on itself. It sort of starts with these kind of clear examples. And when we you and as we go through, we pick up more ideas, we pick up more ideas. And then the last room of the show kind of brings together all of that. I perhaps because I'm a woman of a certain age, like feel those changes. You know, when I was in college, I didn't have a computer. I got email during my first job. Now, look, it, like not that much time has passed. And I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit of a delicate flower, but like I think that it's a great, it's a, it's a seismic shift. Mm -hmm. I, I think I would agree with you. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston with guest curator Janelle Porter. We're discussing her exhibition, Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design, which is on view at the ICA now until September 22nd. So in preparation for this conversation, I just sort of searched around to see what are thoughts about minimalism and maximalism. And there was a lot about Marie Kondoing our lives. <laughs> Everybody knows she's the super declutterer. And so there's a whole rush toward doing that, you know, personally decluttering, decluttering. However, uh, in terms of art and in terms of design, people are really actually responding to more is more. So it's a funny kind of balancing act because I'm told by some of these articles that I read, it's a good economy. And in a good economy, you would like more, whereas people tend to go toward minimalism when 
it's rough economically. I had not thought of it in those terms. Are you aware of that at all as it may impact artists and actually how viewers come to appreciate art? Right. Mm. Well, I come with a sort of gimlet eye, I suppose, because we all know that both is going on all the time and that the press are great spinners of like what's hot and new. Now, yeah, perhaps Marie Kondo's book helps people to get rid of some of the crap they have in their life. But that's really different than, you know, interior decorating. And there is so many uses of the word maximalism right now, especially with fashion. If you look at like what's happening with Gucci and yeah, I look at all that stuff and what's happening in interior design magazines. But a lot of it is pattern on pattern. It's not stuff. So there's kind of distinctions that I think are, they're interesting. Mm. They're not, you know, critical, but. Are they influential at all? Not while I was making the show, but there is always some kind of like, it's fun when you start to read the word that you're using to describe your exhibition. It's fun when you say to a colleague, I'm doing a show called Less is a Bore, and they say to you, oh, it's about maximalism. Like they know, (laughs) and you think, oh, okay, something's going on. People, people are looking, people are getting it. And what you're telling me about an economy being good, I think that is probably critical. But then you look at the 80s and how that got really minimal, that Mm. a sign of wealth is to have a super clean apartment with nothing out. And I think it still is. Like, you see these interior design magazines, you think, who lives like that? I mean, honestly, like, okay, they have a lot of closets and they could put everything away. But I think also that one starts to decorate your body and decorate your home a little bit more exuberantly when when the outlook for the world isn't as rosy, that, that things feel that you want to maybe insulate yourself a bit more and add some joy and whimsy. I mean, I wear black a lot because I stay clean in it, but I also <laughs> like to put on a you know, patterned dress. And so I think it's all of those things that you're saying. It's it's not one thing. It's never one thing. The, the world is a complex place and artists can can absorb that and kind of spit it back at us. And the artists, I mean, I'm led around the nose by artists. That's what I love to do. I've been doing it for 25 years where artists look, I, I look too. And everything I know is because an artist pointed me in that direction. Do you think that the trend toward however it, we come to it at this point of maximalism is, is more or less here to stay for a while? Because... I feel like people don't want to be so stripped down, except in their decluttering, which, as you pointed out, is not design or art. And you're right about that. But in the life of beauty, it feels as though you would want a little bit more complex content. You know, I agree with you, and I think it links back to actually what you even said about food, that our tastes are more open and expansive, that we're living in a world that is really struggling to be more accepting of everybody's personal expression and you know it's a struggle it can be uncomfortable but I think people think I don't need my apartment to look like that interior design magazine it can look however I want it to I can wear whatever I want I can express my gender any way that I want I can like the kind of art that I want to like I was reading an article about a designer in Los Angeles that will kind of bedazzle your car and cover it. And I thought, (laughs) you know, they're saying, well, the car color that you get is so boring. And it's like, it's true. All the cars on the road are the same color. Why does it have to be that way? Why don't we put some like sparkle paint on it? So yeah, what you are proposing, I agree with. We're being more open with ourselves. We're letting our freak flag fly a (laughs) lot more. So back to the, specifically back to the exhibit, Um, for people who will come in and say, this is a lot. To take in. I'm not sure where I am. What one piece would you say to them 
just make sure you go to this piece and give yourself a minute. Oh, Kelly. I mean. I know. Come on. Just pick one. Okay. <laughs> All my children. What piece? Well, oh, my God. This is for the person who is, is just a little overwhelmed. That's all. I'm, I'm not for someone like me who's going to come in and look at it all and, and be interested. I know. And, you know I know. Yeah. I'm like, I'm tracking through. You know, we talked about the tapestries yes. by Pay White. Yeah. And I've already seen the audience really responding to those. There's a familiarity to kind of fabric, to that, that frenzy of pattern. And here we have an artist who is taking an archaic and ancient form of art, of tapestry making. Tapestry, of course, bridged art and craft. And she is creating a painting, an image, through a randomized process that comes from a data feed. And it is spit out, controlled by a computer and made on a, you know, a loom, a digitized loom. And talk about bridging like the oldest and the most contemporary kind of data. I mean, these are thousands of data points. I might say that today in this room with you, that Mm -hmm. that is a, that is a critical work, uh, a very charged way of making and brings together a lot of the ideas in the show overall. So I guess I am a maximalist <laughs> because I responded to the press release and then before I got here and saw anything. Yeah. Um, um, it expressed me. I wonder how you feel when you walk through and look at all the stuff that's there. I mean, are you a maximalist? Do you think at heart or is it, or is am, it just, okay. All right, I okay. am a maximalist. <laughs> I maybe not always in my self presentation, you know, cause uh, you know, you can only have so many clothes, but I, <laughs> I like everything in the show. I, I'm a little overwhelmed by the show, but not in any way that's like uh, debilitating. I think that every work in the show is its own conversation. And then you have to want to kind of put that amazing full work in conversation with everything else in the room. People's eyes look a little like bugged out when they walk in, <laughs> but they also have giant smiles on their face. Because there's a lot of beauty in the show, I think, no matter what your taste. Uh, so I'm still processing it. I'm not afraid to say that. I think there's a lot of ideas in the show and there's a lot of questions, but I really like it. It is work I really like it is to sort of try to answer a question quickly. I really like everything in the show. I would really be happy if I could take it all home with me. <laughs> All right, we have to talk about where uh, Less is a Bore came from and why said person said it Um, so that people won't be wondering where that come from. Yeah. (laughs) The uh, very well-known architect Robert Venturi, uh, who just passed away last year, wrote a book in the 1960s and 1966 called Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. And he was putting forward ideas that were about looking back at the vernacular not looking back at the vernacular, just looking at the vernacular forms of architecture, but also looking back at Baroque architecture, Rococo, ornamentation, all the things that have been stripped away by what was called the international style, which are the glass and steel skyscrapers that we are all surrounded by. Of course, Boston has a lot of wonderful ornamentation and like beautiful old buildings. Yes. You look up and you're like, wow, look at that amazing tile work three stories up. Can you believe somebody took the time to do that? And Venturi... He said less is a bore as a sort of quippy response to Mies van der Rohe, the famous international style architect and modernist, who said less is more. 
Venturi's book was very, very important, and people were starting to use the word postmodernist, and postmodernists were interested in an embrace and sort of not filtering it all out and making it spare with clean lines. And by the way, those architects were responding to Victorian ornamented architecture. It was like, enough of this architecture with all of these surfaces we have to dust. Let's make it clean. <laughs> and, and you know, so this is something else that you already brought up. Everything is cyclical. Mm. You, cyclical, excuse me. You have this, and then there's a knee-jerk reaction to it. Then you have that. And then there's a knee-jerk reaction to that, and then we go back. It's like, circle. why did all the kids like the 80s right now? We already did it. You know, the, but we want to look back, and we want to see things again, and we see things anew. So that is where the expression came from. It's Venturi was interested in humor. He brought humor into his architecture and design, along with his main partner, Denise Scott Brown. And to say less is a bore, it's funny. It's, it's humorous. So art is a conversation. And as our final question to you, what kind of conversation do you think that this particular exhibit is leading us to, we consumers of art? I hope that it leads us to more questions than we might normally be faced with in any kind of context. I hope that the exhibition with its multitude of ideas, multitude of visual experiences, can even let us be a little more comfortable with discomfort. There's a lot of ideas to talk about in this show. And so I, I propose a lot of questions and the conversations are there. We're going to have conversations about taste about the ways artists might use pattern and how the patterns exist in the world and about gender, about um, race. That's like, that's actually all exists in this exhibition and where you want to go with it is, I guess, the conversation that I hope takes us somewhere. Thank you so much. Thank you. Janelle Porter is a guest curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. She organized the exhibition Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design, which is on view at the ICA now until September 22nd. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugart. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.